0: Hello, Duke fans, and welcome to episode 441 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. It is Sunday, September 4th, 2022. Happy birthday to my little sister who turns 30 years old today. So that's awesome. It's also Labor Day tomorrow, or by the time you listen to this, it will be Labor Day. So hopefully some of you get to uh, take a day off of work. Uh, regularly scheduled work tomorrow. Not all of you are taking a day off of work. I am your host for this episode, Sam Klein. One guy who I know is not taking a day off of work tomorrow is Jason Evans. Isn't that right, Jason?
1: That is correct. Yes, Uh, I will be hard at work at CNN, CNN International tomorrow because uh, the UK, Britain is picking a new prime minister And seeing as I write and produce for CNN International, it will be a very, very busy day for me. No rest for the weary. No Labor Day for international employees.
0: It could be uh, Labor Party Day, but it will not be Labor Day for you.
1: It it will not. The Labor Party will not be picking the new prime minister.
0: All right. Well, the Labor Party will not be picking the new (laughs) prime minister. Get a day off. That just goes to show you uh, what I know about British politics. It'll be
1: the Tories. It'll be a Tory.
0: The Tories are picking a new prime minister. Stay tuned to CNN International for all of that coverage thank donald, you for the
1: promo yeah there you go <laughs> donald
0: wine is also here donald j- plug something or or say hello
2: hello uh, i i just want to say to your sister sam happy birthday and thank you there's one there's two things that are are facts for someone who is turning 30 years old the first fact is the realest hangover of your life will occur after you turn 30 years old my birthday wish for her is that she does not have to wait long to experience that pain so that she can go ahead and live the rest of her years, just guilt free. That's, well, that's my wish for her. She is getting married in two weeks. So, uh, so that's fun. Get it out the way. Now get, just get the hangover out the way right now. So that way she won't have, she won't have any fear walking into that wedding.
0: All right, guys, we have a few odds and ends. We need to touch on our timing last week was not ideal because we put out an episode right before Duke men's basketball announced that Dariq Whitehead had broken his foot and was undergoing surgery. We also need to go over the masterful shutout that Duke put on uh, against Temple in its opening football game of the Mike Elko era. And we need to talk a little bit about recruiting, but let's start with Whitehead. So that is pretty much all the news that we have about him, which is that he suffered the injury. He is uh, he has undergone surgery and is now recovering from surgery and that he will return to the court in at game speed, quote, this fall. We don't know what that means in terms of his exact timing. Duke's uh, men's basketball season, the regular season, tips off in exactly nine weeks against Jacksonville. They've got one extra week before the first big uh, marquee game, which is the Champions Classic against Kansas. But Donald Wine, I want your initial reaction to the news that Whitehead is down. This means that he's going to miss most of the critical preseason practices in which I think a lot of the game planning gets installed. And we sort of figured coming into this that if he's not going to be our pick, each of our picks for leading point scorer for Duke this season, that he is going to be high up in a lot of categories.
2: Yeah. And uh, to start, I just want to start with, uh, you know, kind of a funny thing that happened uh, because as soon as this news came out, uh, my best friend texted me and he, and I, I want you guys to hear this because it involves all of us uh, because he had just listened to the episode that we had done about uh, things that we wanted to see change in the, in the John Shire era. And one of those was death, like getting more people involved and having some guys play uh, when, you know, we have some established starters. And he just goes, I just want you to know, that I blame you, Sam and Jason, for this whitehead injury? Quote, we need to have a more, lot more guys get experience and play meaningful minutes so that they're ready to contribute to March. Well, you got your wish. Uh, there is an expletive in there. Um, it, all, again, all of a sudden jest, but I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, Donald, when
0: you said him. that your friend was going to react to that about things we wanted to change about the program, I figured he was going to say uh, lower extremity injuries.
1: Yeah,
2: well, I mean, look, do we've had a few. Are- <laughs> we are used to foot injuries uh, in, in this camp. I mean, as far back as we can remember, um, I mean, I think I I learned that a fifth metatarsal exists when I got to Duke University because so many guys had fractured that particular bone into their foot. But for the case of Dariq, I, I think for me, when I hear he's coming back this fall, my guess is it is sometime before December 21st. And I think, Sam, you may get, uh, we'll get a glimpse into what kind of transparency we will see, right? That was one of the things we talked about when we talk about these injuries. Because, you know, as we know, you know, in previous injuries, it was more of, you know, a wait and see. Whenever they were ready, they kind of came back and there was not a lot of, hey, this guy will be back in four weeks. This guy will be back in three weeks. So for Derrick Whitehead, I just hope he, you know, recovers from this very quickly, um, but also fully. I think that's the most important thing, is that he recovers from this foot injury 100% and is back on the court uh, at that time. I think when it comes to Duke's you know, shape, I think obviously we're going to have to learn to get used to playing without him because that is a remote possibility that, that we will have to begin the season without him in the starting lineup. But I'm okay with that because, again, I think there's going to be some guys that can step up in his absence, and we'll see the true grit of this team, right? We're going to see who's going to step up when their number is called. And I think Derek Whitehead will be one of those guys, but I want him to be one hundred percent when he does that. So I hope he's well. Uh, I, I hope the surgery and everything went okay. But I do think uh, this is something where he we can we can I'll t- I'll take my time bringing him back because one hundred percent Derek Whitehead is way better than seventy five percent Derek Whitehead, and I don't want him to be, have to go through this throughout the season.
0: Jason, what do you think this means for the rest of the team in terms of preparing for the season? Who has to step up in Derek Whitehead's absence, at least early in the year? Because now we know there will be a bit of rust on him when he does come back, perhaps similar to the experience that A.J. Griffin had last season.
1: Yeah, in, in terms of the guys who need to step up, I, I think it's pretty clearly Jacob Grandison. Um, I I I would I would think there's a pretty safe bet now that Jacob Grandison um, is a starter for Duke. I'm not so sure that that was locked in place. Uh, You know, a lot of folks, it it wasn't a sure thing. I think now it's kind of a sure thing. A guy as experienced as Jacob Grandison who knows college basketball, who plays on the wing. uh, I I think he probably is stepping into a starting position now. I think Mark Mitchell, uh, Mark Mitchell who a lot of us thought we were going to almost exclusively see like at a power forward kind of position you may see mark mitchell playing a little bit of small forward which is where derek whitehead was probably going to going to get most of his minutes you may see mark mitchell getting getting more chances here so those are the two guys that i think probably sort of slot in for a little bit of extra t- extra time that said i don't want to say november you know games in november don't matter but in the grand scheme of things games in november don't matter a lot especially if you're missing a key player who comes back Um, later in the year and, and performs very well for you. What everyone remembers almost exclusively is how'd your team do in March? And while injuries suck, look, you never want to get an injury. If you're going to get one, August is a really good time to get it. (laughs) They say he'll be back in the fall. That probably means, you know, sometime maybe in October, but probably sometime in November you know, if you get into December, I sort of feel like that's the winter, not the fall. And and look, anyone's injury, who knows how long it takes. Some people heal faster than others. We we can go back to, to 2001. Carlos Boozer hurt his foot, and we were hearing six weeks, eight weeks, you know, that kind of thing. He came back like two weeks later. <laughs> so guys heal at different different speeds, different rates. I, I I'm just you know with the with what we've heard so far. I think that it is highly likely that Derek Whitehead is back by early December at the outside. And that gives him plenty of time to be integrated into the team to catch up on stuff that he missed in the early season. Donald is right. Missing those early season practices is a big deal, especially for a freshman. I'm just glad he had several weeks on campus with the guys over the summer. But my bet is that by January, this will be very much in the rearview mirror. And Derek Whitehead will be, you know, one of the contenders for ACC player of the year if he is everything every, everyone expects him to be.
0: And I think the experience last year with A.J. Griffin will be somewhat instructive. I, I believe that going into this season, Whitehead's expected role is, is a little bit bigger than what we were looking for from A.J. Griffin last season. But at least John Shire has managed a thing very similar to this just last year, which is losing a key player in the early season, forcing you to reshuffle Another guy, Jason, that I think could be uh, in for a little bit more playing time here. Not exactly the same position, but Jaden Shoot might have more opportunities and more touches on the wing to uh, to get shots and 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 score a few more buckets early in his career.
1: Hey, and really quick, I didn't mention Tyrese Proctor because they aren't. You know, Tyrese Proctor is going to probably play shooting guard, and I think Derek Whitehead is almost exclusively going to be a forward. But I actually think you could see Tyrese Proctor getting even more chances because. You know, that we make mentioned Jacob Grandison, Jaden Shoot, Mark Mitchell. None of those guys are creators. None of those guys are going to initiate the offense the way Derek Whitehead was going to. I mean, like you can you can say, oh, Grandison will play in that position, but they're not the same player, not by a huge, huge stretch. I think Tyrese Proctor without Dariq Whitehead is going to be a guy Duke really needs to initiate offense. Kyle Filipowski as well. I mean, one of the questions we had about this team was, you know, who are they going to run the offense through? If they've got Dreek Whitehead, they're running a lot of the offense through him, him, Jeremy Roach, and who knows who else. Well, without Dreek Whitehead, I think Filipowski and Proctor are the guys who maybe get a few more chances to run the offense through them.
0: Donald, let's get the last word on the Dreek Whitehead injury. What do you think about his ability to bounce back from this once he is healthy, whether that's in october november or even december
2: well that's the major question right like we we experienced this last year with aj griffin and and i know aj griffin was a different situation because he had experienced similar injuries like the knee injury that he suffered at at, in preseason practice he had been through injuries in high school so one of the things that we talked about last year was confidence his ability to be confident that when he got back and he was 100% healthy when he stepped on the court that he could be full AJ Griffin that he could do the things that made him great without fear of thinking that he was going to re-injure himself. And I think in the case of Derek Whitehead with him being able to create off the dribble with him being able to create, you know, shots and for him to attack the basket and do the things that he does best. I hope that he comes back with that confidence still ingrained in him that hey, I am 100%. I can go and take off from the key and, and dunk it over somebody if necessary, because I know if I do that, I'm not going to re-injure myself. That's the real confidence, you know, that we need from him in the, especially in the first few days uh, and weeks when he comes back, because if he doesn't grab that, then he becomes a different player and we have to adjust around that. But if he can come back and be the same Derek Whitehead that he was before the injury, then Duke's in great shape.
0: I want to transition really quickly to recruiting because uh, Duke has gotten a bit more uh, hot interest, I would say, from a from a top prospect in the 2023 class. That's T.J. Power. He's a power forward from Worcester Academy up here in Massachusetts. Does it feel like Duke is recruiting more guys out of out of New England these days? It just seems like seems like there are more of them coming in. But I know. Jason has has a few things to say about T.J. Power. Jason, what's the latest on this recruitment and where does T.J. Power fit into John Shire's recruiting plan?
1: So uh, the reason we're talking about him now is that it, it, T.J. has said he's going to decide on his school in mid to late September, somewhere in that ballpark. His birthday, by the way, I know comes up late in September. And I wouldn't be shocked if he sort of said, hey, is my birthday present to the world. I'm going to announce my decision. The other reason we're talking about him is that over the weekend, um, 24 seven, which is the recruiting agency that does the crystal ball. They have all these experts and, and these guys, you know, register picks. There were no picks. No one had, had registered where they thought TJ power was going to go. And over the weekend, there were uh, two people, both of whom are, are, you know, folks who uh, follow Duke recruiting, Duke recruiting gurus, so to speak, who, who both went ahead and registered picks for T.J. Power to pick Duke University. And uh, look, there are not a lot of guys that John Shire has gone after in a big way. And he is going after T.J. Power in a big way that Shire has missed on. And there are a lot of folks out there who now think T.J. Power is pretty likely to go to Duke. All right. So let me tell you a little bit about this kid very quickly. This is a kid who's recruiting absolutely exploded over the summer. He was playing in one of the big EYBL events, you know, one of these big AAU events in Kansas City. Um, and he, he, you know, he was like a top 100 recruit, maybe maybe top 75 or so. Well, it is, at this EYBL event, he had back-to-back games where he scored 33 points with 10 rebounds and six assists. And the next game, he scored 41 points with 15 rebounds and five assists. By the way, he did all that while hitting like 70% of his three-pointers. He was named the offensive MVP of that EYBL event. And I think that's good, right? That that's yeah. those, those are numbers good numbers. Are good. Yep. Those are good numbers. And instantly, uh, this is a guy who he'd been getting he'd been recruited by like Notre Dame, Providence, Virginia Tech schools like that. Suddenly, in the span of one week, Duke, UNC, Kansas and UCLA all offered him scholarships. Oh, I think you're a big-time recruit, my friend. So his recruiting absolutely took off after that. He has now narrowed his list to five schools. His final five are Iowa, Virginia, Boston College, and Duke and UNC. And most people think probably this is a Duke and UNC battle. Um, It's 6'8". He has great smarts and skills. He can take the ball off a rebound and turn it into an instant fast break. He's a really good passer. You heard I was – laying out those numbers. He, he puts up five, six assists a game. He is an absolutely elite shooter. I mean, there are, they're talking about him as one of the best big man shooters in the class, perhaps the best big man shooter in the class. And by the way, he's mobile and agile, and he's a very good defender. At the Peach Jam, he averaged 1.4 steals per game and 1.6 blocks per game. I mean, dude can play. And he had a great matchup against Caleb Foster, uh, another Duke recruit, at the Peach Jam. Apparently, the gym was absolutely packed Everyone was there to see these two guys face off against each other. They each scored 28 points in the game. Caleb Foster went 6 of 12 from three. T.J. Power went 6 of 10 from three. So, yeah, I'm eager to get this guy in the fold. It's worth noting T.J. Power is a fifth-year senior. He's been in high school for a while. He's older than most guys in the class of 2023. And it's worth noting he is also considered a draftable prospect in baseball. He is a left-handed pitcher. With a fastball that approaches 90 miles an hour. Th- th- those are valuable. And he says he wants to play both baseball and basketball in college. He says all the schools he's considering, he's spoken to the baseball coaches there and they've all said, yeah, six, eight lefty who, who's bringing it 88, 90 miles an hour. I think I can find a spot for you on the team. <laughs> but he says his focus is on basketball. All right, just really quick. The question I think that we have to ponder here for TJ Power is, Does he want to go someplace and be the star from day one? Or is he willing to maybe take a slightly smaller role? Because let's be honest at Duke, we already have Mackenzie Mbako and Sean Stewart coming in. They are both, you know, small forward, power forward center kind of types. Uh, TJ power. clearly TJ power is clearly a power forward. These are two other guys who are technically power forwards who are ranked ahead of him in the class. No one knows who from this year's team is going to return. But it wouldn't be crazy. People are saying Kyle Filipowski might come back to Duke. Ryan Young certainly looks like he's going to come back to Duke. That's a lot of big guys in the program. Even if Mbako plays more small forward than power forward, I I think there's a pretty good chance if TJ Power came to Duke, he'd be coming sort of as a sub, not as a guaranteed starter. Look at UNC. Look at all the guys UNC is going to lose after this year. If TJ Power picks Carolina – He would be almost assured of stepping into a starting spot unless you think he can't beat out Puff Johnson, which I think he and obviously at programs like Virginia, Iowa and B.C., those are programs that don't usually recruit top 25, top 20 players. So he would be one of the most celebrated recruits they've had in a while. So the question for him becomes, do I want to go someplace where I am the man from day one or do I want to go to a program where I can win a national title and where I will, you know, sort of gradually work my way into being. A super super important player. That's all I got on him. Is that enough?
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. And and I was going to bring up the the positional glut a little bit because you mentioned all those guys. Mark Mitchell is probably also still in the fold next season for Duke.
1: Well, I, I'll tell you that a lot of people think Mark Mitchell, just because of his athleticism, they think he's more like than Kyle Filipowski. But we we don't know. It's possible. We we haven't seen these guys play enough basketball to know.
0: And and all of those guys are in you know, they're not all exactly the same size, but you mentioned also Mbako and Stewart. Uh, so, so it's already a crowded position as it is. Donald, any other thoughts on on TJ Power and his apparent sudden interest in Duke as his uh, recruitment is apparently drawing to a close?
2: No, i, I just say his recruitment is, is reminding me of Jaden Shute, of how he's rocketed kind of up the rankings list over the last few months. And of course, you know, having the in with uh, John Shire, the the recruiting guru, Um, he has been, you know, I, I feel confident that we'll probably land him. Um, if we don't land him, uh, okay, that's fine. Uh, but I feel like I have no reason to doubt John Shires recruiting ability at this point because everyone that he goes after he gets. And I think when it comes to TJ power, I think they'll find a way to work him into the offense. And yeah, I I think Jason is right. The question is, does he want to be the star or does he want to, does he mind waiting for his chance? Uh, because I think here he's going to have to wait for his chance. Uh, but again, Jaden Shute, you know, again, nobody heard about him two years ago, and now he's someone who is poised to possibly get heavy minutes for a Duke basketball team in the first few months of the year. Uh,
1: you know, we should be clear, though. T.J. Power is considered a better prospect relative to his class than Jaden Shute. And, you know, while I sit here and I go, oh, Sean Stewart, oh, uh, Mackenzie Mbako, oh, Kyle Filipowski, Mark... It's it's not insane. It wouldn't be crazy if TJ Power ended up being a starter and one of those guys ended up being the sub. He's that good a prospect. He has shot up the recruiting rankings in that kind of way. No, he is not rated as high as Mackenzie Mbako and Sean Stewart right now. But do you are you going to tell am I going to tell you that there's no way he starts ahead of one of those guys? I'm not going to say that. He 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 possibly could. So everything's on the table for this kid. And again, he's a little bit older. So there's talk that maybe he's someone who would be around college a little longer, won't necessarily be a one-and-done prospect because the NBA may not be immediately interested in him because he's just a little bit older and doesn't quite have as much of that potential label that you would label with him.
0: The other interesting thing about this related to the depth that could be building here is that in the Coach K era, even though Coach K had had seeded a lot of the main recruiting contacts to his assistants, notably John Shire, the strategy, the overall strategy of having key guys at every position that Coach K would target every year appears to be fading a little bit. John Shire is is recruiting multiple guys at at positions now in ways that Coach K I don't think was was super open to. So I don't know if that's John Shire realizing that he may not succeed at closing, at the same clip that Coach K did, or if it represents a tweak to the program's recruiting philosophy. But it's an interesting thing to watch. And if TJ Power does commit to Duke in the next couple of weeks, curious to hear exactly what his motivation was.
1: And and, and I'll tell you, Sam, to expand on the point that you're making there, I think the way John Shire is recruiting indicates to me that he's interested in playing more players than Coach K was. Um, you know that's one of the things we've talked about Coach K six and a half maybe seven guys and it feels to me like the way John Shire's recruiting that Shire wants to go more like eight nine I'm not sure ten but eight or nine deep at least
0: definitely all right guys we're going to leave it there for basketball we're going to take a quick break when we get back we need to talk about Duke's huge opening victory against Temple on the gridiron on Friday night stick around We are back and we are talking Duke football. The Mike Elko era is here and it has arrived with a bang. Duke beats Temple in its opening game of the 2022 season. The final score was 30 to nothing, but it was 24 to nothing at halftime. Guys, I unfortunately did not watch this game. So I uh, I was at a wedding this weekend. We had a, I guess it was a rehearsal dinner, a a welcome party on Friday night. We had wedding activities all day on Saturday. So I did not managed to steal away for two hours to even watch a condensed version of this game. But I am looking over the numbers and I am watching the highlights. And oh, my goodness, do we have to talk about Riley Leonard's debut as a Duke Blue Devil? And wow, do we need to talk about the Duke defense's ability to shut out Temple, its first shutout of an FBS team since 1989. That is the year that I was born. Donald Wine, start us off. In, on whichever side of the ball you prefer, but we are going to have to talk Riley Leonard and the amazing stats that he put up on Friday.
2: Well, you ruined my stat that I was going to uh, share with everybody, but yes, not November 18th, 1989, that is the last time Duke shut out an FBS opponent. And Jason, do you know
1: which team that was? It was the North Carolina Tar Heels. And it was uh, Steve Spurrier, 1989 was my senior year. I remember that game vividly. Wait, I've got an even, it was 41 to nothing. 41 to nothing. I got an even better stat for you. That game was on the road. It was in Chapel Hill. Do you guys know the last time Duke shut out an FBS school at home? 1978. 1978 against Wake Forest. That is a long time. That is before I even thought about going to Duke University. <laughs>
2: that is incredible. Um, and let's start with Riley Leonard, because I think we'll talk about the defense a lot. But I think when it comes to Riley Leonard, Jason, I believe you you messaged us during this, uh, during this game saying, hey, he started out 14 for 14. Is that good? Yes, ladies and gentlemen, that's very good. That like That's that's what you want from a quarterback, to distribute the ball, move the ball downfield, move the sticks, and that's what he was doing. I mean, his final stats, 24 for 30, 328 yards, two touchdowns, zero interceptions, and an average of 10.9 yards per completion. That's, it, that's great. That is exactly great. We, we were talking about the, the questions that we had about how the offense was going to run the ball uh, and move the ball down the field. And we found that Ryan Leonard can not only throw the ball, he can also run the ball too. He had 64 yards on the ground as well, a 5.8 yards. He led all Duke rushers in rushing yards. So he was, I mean, on the offensive side of the ball, having him in the game was incredible. And uh, I, I, I say this, you know, obviously we have some pause, right? Because we beat a team 30 to nothing. It's Temple. And the questions that were flying around were, was Duke that great or was Temple that terrible? And I think there was probably a, a somewhere in the middle lies the truth, right? Like Duke was very good there. I, I think the one offensive stat that I think we can improve on is our field goals. Charlie Hamm was three for six. Um, you don't want that to happen, but he did have some really good kicks. He missed one 50 yarder. They missed a couple that would be considered makeable.
1: Um, so they were inside we work 40. If you do miss kicks inside of 40 yards, that's, that's a problem. Look, yes, there, but there here's are the schools. Deal. There are schools that lost games this weekend on really, really makeable kicks. You don't want to do that, East Carolina, right? But here's the deal:
2: when you have six opportunities to kick field goals, that means you're moving the ball down the field and you're getting opportunities again to score. So I, I'm not. I, again, that's a very small thing that we can work on. I know Charlie Ham will be much better as we as the season goes along. Uh, I have no I have no reference to think that three out of six is the best that he can do. So I'm not too worried about that. But again moving the ball downfield, making first downs, first downs, first downs, and getting into positions to score and then actually taking advantage of that. That's the Duke that we, you know, that we had in the, in the heydays of, you know, of of, uh, the 2010s, right. Where they were able to on command kind of move the ball downfield with their skilled players and make, and make big scores. I was very, very excited about the numbers that
1: they were putting up on the board in the offensive end, because we haven't seen those in quite a while. Look, Donald, when we were previewing the team and we were talking about what we wanted to see and stuff you wanted, you said you wanted chunk plays. You want those big plays. Duke had a, a whole mess of them and, and it, it was, it was great to see. And, and look, you're right. The big question is, was this Duke beating up on an awful team or was this Duke made it, making a mediocre team look awful? And we won't know the answer to that for a little while, but 30 to nothing is a pretty major beatdown for an FBS school and it's not like Temple's from one of the tiny conferences. The AAC is a pretty good conference. There are some very good teams in that conference. Temple's not at the top of the conference, but it's a it's still a quality conference. So this was a a very solid win. Uh, you mentioned Riley Leonard. Uh, I, I want to mention a couple other guys. Uh, do you guys see Jalen Coleman ran for twenty yards on the very first uh, you know series at DuCAD and he stiff armed the umpire along the way. I loved it. It was, it was hysterical. The ump almost took him down, but he stiff-armed the ump, and that was a great play. And the very next play after that was Riley Leonard threw like a looping sideline pass to Jordan Moore. Um, yes, Jordan Moore, the backup quarterback. And Jordan Moore took that for 52 yards. He showed shiftiness. He showed speed. Jordan Moore is absolutely a weapon. And in the second quarter on the TD catch that Jordan Moore had, the ball was coming in a little high and a little hot, and he caught it anyway. Considering he's been playing wide receiver for three weeks, dude looks really good. I think he is going to be a major weapon. Regarding Riley Leonard, I, I think it's worth noting that it wasn't just easy passes that he was making when he, you know, when he started out 15 for 15 when he when he had this great stat line. He was finding guys in small windows. He had a pass in the second quarter to Jalen Calhoun where he put it between like three defenders. The TD pass he had to Samir Hagens was an amazing touch throw. He delivered the ball perfectly, close to thirty yards in the air.
2: <clears throat> he
1: took a couple hits and delivered without any hesitation. Didn't come up gun shy or anything like that. And and I really loved. There were a couple times he really sold like play action. There was one time where he he like he faked like he was going to run the ball and then dumped off a pass. It just seemed like the offense was a little more creative um, than it has been in in recent years. And Riley Leonard looked smart and in control the whole time. And the biggest thing is, on offense, Duke had zero turnovers. Gentlemen, this is a Duke team that has been among the worst teams in all of college football the past couple of years at turning the ball over. Zero. We had zero turnovers. And on defense, Temple never came close to the end zone. They never attempted a field goal. The furthest they got into Duke territory was like the last play of the game. They got to the Duke thirty-seven. They're playing against our backups, against our frontline defense. They couldn't even really cross midfield. And and that's just incredibly impressive. And then the last thing I want to mention very quickly, there wasn't a great crowd, but the student section was full and it was rowdy. Now, I know they, they did like prize giveaways and stuff to entice the students to come, but I'm sure that those students had a really good time and hopefully they won't need bribes to come to future games. Because the Elko era is one and oh and Duke's Duke won their first game 30 to nothing. And if that won't bring you out to the stadium, I don't know anything that will. I,
2: I think we, we touched a lot on the offense. Let me touch on the defense because that was another uh point of contention or a point of pain from last season. Uh they did not, you know, turn they did not get takeaways at all. I think they were dead last, if I remember, in division one uh, or FBS. In the amount of takeaways that they had, they had two fumble recoveries, which I think is terrific. They didn't have any interceptions, but again, turning the ball, getting the ball back in good positions for your team to score makes it where you get have are able to score. Pitching a gooch- goose egg, perfect. Like you can't say anything about that. But again, they did not give up the big play. They did not give up, you know, third and longs and and, ter- and have those being converted into first downs for a team led by a guy who was a defensive coordinator we were asking ourselves what is going to change about the defensive side of the football. Guys were attacking the football. They were going after whoever had the ball uh, on on Temple's offense, and they were going after them very quickly, stuffing them out, getting them off the field so that the offense can come back and do work. So great, great. I, I just want to send out kudos to the defense because it, it takes nothing. I think there was only like five or six teams that pitched shutouts in Division One football this weekend. Duke was one of them. Repeat. Duke was one of those teams, and that's not that's not something that you hear often. Again, the last time we had a shutout, Sam wasn't even born yet. So, like that—that's. I mean, the, I I I'm so happy with the defensive side of the ball and how that worked.
1: Hey, two key numbers with the defense. In addition to zero. Zero is the most important number. But the two key numbers were Temple had 179 total yards of offense. That's not a lot. You can't win games getting 179 total yards of offense. And Temple averages just 2.2 yards per rush. That's that's impressive. That says to me that you controlled the line of scrimmage. And whoever wins the battle at the line of scrimmage wins the game, period. Looking up and down
0: the stats from this game, I'm just floored at, at, at the the big and very little numbers that Duke was able to put up. The turnovers is the biggest one that stands out to me, given how bad the team was down the stretch last season, both at preventing like, like preventing turnovers from happening when they're on offense and, and also grabbing turnovers when the team is on defense. Duke was able to execute on both sides of that last night. Hopefully, they're able to do the same thing this coming week against Northwestern, a much tougher opponent, and Duke has to travel to Evanston. Not the, not the scariest place to play, but it is a road game. So the team's going to have to get, you know, uh, get on the airplane and, and do the whole thing in in Evanston next week before returning home to face North Carolina A&T for the third game of the season. So, uh, regardless, I think of what happens against Northwestern Duke should at least feel happy that, uh, that, that, that the Mike Elko time is, is off to a good start.
2: And Northwestern is a good team. Uh, So far this season, they've been very, very good. So, uh, Uh, This is the test, right? Like, again, we we will learn very quickly if the temple team we beat was just super bad or if Duke is a much better football team. Again, I think it lies somewhere in the middle. They, if Again, if they can not have any turnovers, limit the big plays that, that Northwestern will have because Northwestern will get a couple. They can limit those and, again, make big plays of their own. If they beat Northwestern, that's our big statement, not just to us, but to the rest of the ACC and the rest of the nation that, hey, Duke football might be turning corner here and we might be entering a new era under Mike Elko.
1: Yeah, so Northwestern is favored by, by 10 points in this game. Um, that's, that's a pretty big number. Uh, and, and it's because Northwestern had a much more impressive win than Duke did. Northwestern beat Nebraska in their opening game. And, uh, and they, they put up a ton of yards. Northwestern had more than 500 yards of total offense in that game. And they've got a really good quarterback. It is going to be a challenge for the Duke defense. But it is worth noting that Northwestern gave up 465 yards to to Nebraska, uh, including 355 yards in the air. So if Riley Leonard is for real, and it sure looks like he is, be you know be on the lookout for him to have another big game against Northwestern. I, I think ten points is a lot. I I like Duke. You know, I don't know if we're going to beat Northwestern. But I like us to make it a competitive game. And, and we heard from Jim Sumner. That's a lot of what the coaches want this season. They want Duke to be competitive in all their games.
0: So we'll see how Duke does this weekend against Northwestern. We will see what happens with Dariq Whitehead's injury as it progresses. And we will see what happens with Duke recruiting. Stay in touch with us, DBR Podcast at gmail. Hey, hey, Sam, com.
1: Really quick, I- I'm going to do the tease. I'm going to do the tease here. You mentioned recruiting. It's not a sure thing. But we're pretty sure one of the leading experts on college basketball, a known name, a big name in the college basketball universe, will be our guest on the next show because he and I were fighting on Twitter this week about Duke recruiting. He's going to come here and tell you that John Shire's not a great recruiter. It's going to be a fun podcast, folks. Tune in for that.
0: Yeah, good stuff. Uh, Looking forward to that conversation that we have scheduled for later this week, but we don't, need to, uh, we don't need to promise anything. We'll just tell you we think it's going to be a good time. So with that, as I said, stay in touch with us, dbrpodcast at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. Uh, I appreciate all the additional emails we've gotten about the Artemis launch, which appears to just never uh, be ready to go. So that is always a good time. But for Jason Evans and for Donald Wine, I am Sam Klein. This has been Episode 441 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Happy birthday to my little sister. We will talk to you all again soon. Duke band, take us home.